0: The second worst Ebola outbreak in history is currently unfolding in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Since August last year, there have been nearly 1,000 confirmed cases and over 600 deaths. DRC is a very large country, and these cases are so far confined to the eastern part of the DRC. This also happens to be the region of the country that has long been mired in conflict and insecurity. On the line today is Karen Huster, the field director for MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I caught up with her from Goma, which is a large city in eastern DRC. We kick off discussing recent attacks on Ebola treatment centers run by MSF, and then have a longer conversation about the trajectory of this outbreak and what can be done to halt its spread. One thing that comes through in this conversation is that this outbreak is not under control, but Karen Hester does have some ideas on what should be done to stop this outbreak. Ebola in the DRC has fallen from the headlines in recent months, but it continues to fester. This episode provides you with a groundside view of why this outbreak is so persistent. A quick note before we begin, if you are listening to this show contemporaneously, I wanted to let you know that we have some available slots for advertising. This is a great way to get your message in front of tens of thousands of global affairs professionals, including leaders at the UN, the NGO community, government, academia, and think tanks. Send me an email using the contact button on com, and I can tell you about our rates, availability, and the impact of advertising with Global Dispatches Podcast. And now here is my conversation with Karen Huster, field coordinator in the DRC for Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: So the one in Katwa, the first one that was burnt uh, during the night of the February 24th, you know, and morning of 25th, uh, is uh, still not reopened. Um, And the one in Butembo, which was also a Doctors Without Borders clinic that was attacked uh, a few days later, um has been uh, reopened and is being run by the Ministry of health with support from uh, the w h o
0: What do we know about who attacked these centers and why
1: that we don't we don't you know really have um any information about that um, not um, you know there are speculations but uh from from our side, um, there is, you know, we don't know.
0: And, and, and just briefly, like, what happened to those two centers? How did the attack uh, occur?
1: Yeah, so so for the first one, um, it was, you know, attacked by in the middle of the night, um, around 10.30 p.m. by um, some unknown uh, individuals. Um and uh they set fire to to the treatment center. Um and they set fire in many different areas of the center. They burned uh a car, some motorcycles. Um so it's it's been you know pretty seriously damaged. Um and then uh the attack uh in Butembo, which is really very close by, it's maybe a, a ten minute drive. Um that was a little bit different. Um, you know, we, we weren't there to, to witness that, but per the reports, uh, there was a car that rammed into the, the treatment center. And then, uh, people with, uh, with, that were armed, uh, came into the center and then, um, and then attacked it. So, so a little bit, uh, you know, different, but, uh, just as, uh, just as scary, you know, with the uh, patients, obviously, um, Leaving some of them, uh, medical staff, definitely very scared. Um, some of them, you know, uh, are leaving the facility. So. Um, and then uh, most of the patients had to be transferred from Butembo. They had to be transferred to the Lima um, uh, Transit Center. And, uh, and for us in Katwa, we also transferred our patients, our confirmed cases, we transferred them to the Ebola treatment unit in Butembo, because at that time it was still working, and then all our suspect cases at the Lima Transit Center.
0: So, you know, one of the the ongoing and recurring um, issues that that I keep sort of reading about and, and hearing about from, say, World Health Organization officials that I interview is the fact that there are, you know, ongoing conflicts in areas where uh Ebola is now um prevalent and, and present in these in this parts of, of DRC. Do you have a sense that the attacks yeah. on the MSF facilities were like politically motivated or was it more a sense of like local grievances being sort of aired and, and MSF and, and the treatment facility being targeted be- because of that?
1: Yeah. Um so again we, we, we don't know, you know, who did the attacks and we don't know the motives behind the attack. Um what uh and, and, and we don't know that it targeted MSF specifically, uh, or the overall, you know, the the, the Ebola response, um um or if there were some larger, you know, uh, factors like uh, political uh, Discords and things along those lines There are armed groups in, in North Kivu, we know that that exists, you know, and I think um, it, it's just really difficult to, to, you know, to, to, to know. Um, so for us, um, the, the, just the, the, the conclusion of this was, okay, we have two centers that have been destroyed pretty much and, um, and staff that is extremely scared. Um, and so, so that's why you know we 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 couldn't uh, continue to provide care. Um, we just couldn't guarantee the safety of um, of our teams.
0: So you know we're now in the midst of the second worst uh, Ebola outbreak in history, uh, after the West Africa uh, yep. outbreak from from two and a half three years ago. What can you tell me about mm-hmm. the current trajectory? Of this outbreak and and current trends in this outbreak.
1: Yeah, so I think that's a very good question, and it's uh, and it's really worrying right now. So since the attacks, um, we've seen you know we've seen a rise at first. There are a few cases, and and that's most likely because um, there were no activities of surveillance and contact tracing that were happening, right? Because everybody was sort of. Uh, you know the the response was um, was a little bit put on hold uh, because everybody was in shock and understandably so. Um, but that allowed you know things to continue in the community. And then from the community standpoint, um, they I think you know in turn um, um, just were really concerned about this increase in, in 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 violence. And so for them already being scared of. Coming to a treatment center because you know because we didn't do a very good job from the beginning of community engagement, um, that uh, that made these attacks you know made them stay even more at home. And so what we're seeing today is we're seeing um, we're seeing some really worrying trends. We're seeing that forty percent of the new cases that are coming are community deaths. so that means that people instead of coming, are dying in the community of Ebola. Um, and when we know that, uh, uh, you know, somebody who's dead is, is at its most infectious, uh, then you can only imagine uh, the number of people that will fall sick from, from a death in a community. So we've seen that. We've seen uh, as well um, many of the cases uh, that we identify do not have, an, you know, a known link to another case. And that's really concerning because that means that there are cases that are sort of floating in the community, and we don't – we didn't know about them, or we didn't – they weren't linked to somebody else who had Ebola. And uh, and that's obviously a problem, because that means that we're not controlling uh, the epidemic. Uh, related to that, we're also seeing that uh, many cases were not known contact of a case of Ebola. And so um, that's another indicator that things are not, you know, in control, under control. Um, because you should ideally, you know, once you have, if you have a positive case, you've identified all the contacts or contacts of contacts around the case and, uh, you, you follow them, you know, you go every day and you make sure that they're healthy. Um, and so if somebody falls sick, you bring them to the treatment center. But in this case, we're seeing people who are, who contract the disease, but are not a contact of an existing case. And that's, that's really scary. Well, um, well can I ask you know the attack we've seen yeah well well
0: I mean groups like MSF and the World Health Organization and I'm sure your partners in the in the government of the DRC I mean they've actually over the years gotten very good at doing this kind of surveillance and contact tracing but you're telling me that that contact mm-hmm. tracing is just not sufficient what what's the problem I mean you know there there. this is like a, a science that it seems groups are are very good at and very tested at by now
1: yeah i think i think you know we're we're very good with the science um but we're maybe not as good with the uh with the human side of things you know with the with um with the sort of the softer science so so anything that's you know around health promotion community engagement um we know how to treat something um we know how to look for cases we know all these things but we I think have a tendency to forget that there are humans behind these cases or these contacts and they behave, you know, in certain ways. And if, if you are scared, you know, that somebody um, is going to come to maybe take you to bring you to a, to a Nivola treatment center. Um, if you, then, then you might run away. You know, if you, um, if you uh, see that you're, you know your loved one was taken to to a treatment center, but uh, but died, and you were not given you know a good explanation or somebody didn't come to you to explain what happened, et cetera, et cetera. Then people are going to, you know they are not going to trust the 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 response. They're not going to trust us to to do the right thing. So um, contact tracing, I think, is more than just knocking at doors and and finding people and saying okay he's well he's not well it's really having a relationship with the people in the community um and and maybe this is what's missing and that's why we're not doing it uh as well as we should
0: and and it just sounds like until you and and others and and the government um figure out how to um have a better relationship with people in these communities uh that this that this um outbreak is going to fester for for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think we uh, um MSF uh, realized um especially after the the two attacks on our centers we realized that uh, that we were sort of coming short when it came to community engagement and that we really needed to you know refocus the way we uh we approached uh, um Ebola outbreaks um, and, uh, and, you know, putting, putting health promotion, putting community engagement first, um, and then, uh, uh and then doing the case management, you know, the, the Ebola treatment centers. I think, um, I think that's, you know, that will be a start. I think there are a lot of people thinking about, you know, how can we, um, how can we change this response so that, uh, we can gain the trust of people and we can finally get you know, get a grip on, on this epidemic. It's not as if we have, you know, 50 cases every day. It's not like this, but it just keeps on, as you said, festering. It just keeps on going and going and going. Um, And so um, we've been, you know, thinking about uh, sort of decentralizing, you know, the care. So, so allowing for people maybe to be tested in their community versus having to come to the Ebola treatment center or the transit center or, um or you know um um when we do um by we I mean the response the greater we when uh, yeah. when we do um um safe and dignified burials that instead of of you know the staff being staff from the red cross or staff from you know from some other organization that instead we use people from those communities that we train them to do to do these burials safely you know so that they then you have people that the trust is automatically higher, right? Because you have people who, who belong to those communities. It's most likely somebody from their family that they might be, you know, helping to bury. Um, and it would definitely decrease the, the level of reticence between, you know, the, the communities and, and the responders. So we're looking at, you know, what is it that we can do to, to really get a, to really get a grip on this because definitely the way the way we're doing things today um, is, is not working. Well, one
0: interesting sort of innovation is, is the vaccine that, that has been deployed by uh, the Ebola responders. This, I think, is probably the second uh, outbreak in DRC where uh, vaccinations have been used. How, how is that sort of changing uh-huh. the response? And how, I mean, are you able to um, encourage people from affected communities and from affected families to, to get the vaccine?
1: So so that's interesting. In uh so at the end of the uh West Africa epidemic, so I think around two thousand fifteen or so, we started using uh the vaccine, but not really as part of an um it it was not as a reactive uh measure, but more as a as a preventive measure. In in the case of this epidemic, it's the first time that we're using it, and with the one in Equator right before it, um using it as a, in a reactive way. So that means Every time there is a case identified, you do what is called a ring vaccination. So you vaccinate the contacts of that person. And then you also, even more important, you vaccinate the contacts of the contacts because you really want to have a good buffer, um, that you build in order to, to protect the population. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, It's definitely um, a tool that's been used and that, that does uh, that we think uh, work. It has protected people. I think the issue again uh, um, has been to uh, to do the vaccination rings on time. So as soon as you have a case, as soon as the case is identified, you need to do that uh, ring vaccination it's a lot of people, you know, I mean, if it's, you know, let's say it's you, you have a lot of friends that you see on a regular day. Uh, So let's say it's maybe 40, 50 people. And then it's all the friends of those friends. So it can go to 250, you know, 200 people very easily. Um, And so you need to do this fast because the longer you wait and the less effective this tool is going to be. Um, And so if you're not able to go, Um, in the community because either you don't have enough resources or you you have too many cases or um, you believe that um, the the safety um, for your team is not met then uh, you will have people who are not vaccinated and uh, and so you're left with the problem before the vaccine which is that uh you know, people that are,
0: that have no protection. So you keep coming back to this idea that community engagement is, is sort of the key factor in um, stopping this, this outbreak. Mm -hmm. Can you um, tell me an example of community engagement done right? Um, Where has either MSF or some of your partners or, or allies in sort of the Ebola response done well in engaging a community? Can you sort of tell an anecdote or give an example?
1: yeah i think um where where it's done well it's really when uh when very small teams um go into the community um and and invest a lot of time uh and a lot of effort and have a lot of interest you know so um I don't have um specific examples although i, I will say that um that in Liberia in two thousand fourteen Uh, it took a while for us to understand that this was going to, you know, this was going to be the game changer. But um, when, when that was realized, the, the community engagement piece uh, was crucial to, to bring down, uh, to control the epidemic, you know, after that. Um, And, um, and I think it, it, it really is a game changer when you do it well, you know, you have to, to go, you have to uh, make sure you meet with, all the important people in the community it doesn't you know important for us might not be what's important to them it could be groups of women that have a lot of influence it could be religious leaders it all depends you have to you have to understand um from the get-go you know the community structure their social um how they're socially you know networked um all these things and then you just have to spend time listen to them listen to their concerns um, and, and work with them, you know, use them as your partners in, in to help. And it takes time, it takes time to build trust. Right. So, um, but, um, that's, that's, you know, how it's done, right. It's not done right. When you just go and, and, and spread blanket messages, you know, with a, with a, a, a loudspeaker, uh, and stay in a place for 10 minutes and then, and then go to the next one. And, and count this as a community engagement. That's that's not the way um, that it's efficient, You know that it works. People, um, you know, you need you need to build relationships. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, finally, you know, people listening to this uh, show, um, you know, they're not necessarily global health experts, but they probably work in in governments or think tanks or around the UN. And uh, what message do you have Mm -hmm. for them about this, the current trajectory of this uh, Ebola outbreak and what um, else needs to be done to, to finally, you know, get this under control?
1: Yeah um I think I think we're all understanding that um this epidemic is not under control as of you know as of today um and that if we do uh if we do want to get a hold of it which you know is going to take time then we really need to rethink um the way uh the way we do Ebola and we we need to think about um uh, different solutions you know that could be um, decentralizing care that could be, you know, uh, um, definitely, uh, community engagement that could not be, that must be community engagement, um, and investing in communities and investing in relationships. Um, only then, you know, will we be able to, to control this. And, and I think, um, uh the DRC and the people of North Kivu have really uh shown us how important uh community engagement is you know they um they have a long history of, of uh distrust of the of, of of the Congolese government and so um it's it's even more important for them they're very um they're very shy they're very um um dubious about this new disease that's coming, you know, and the importance of this new disease. I and mean, after all, many, many of their family members are not dying of Ebola, but they're dying of other diseases. And so um, all these messages and all this attention for them uh, is, uh, is something that they have a hard time uh, wrapping their, their minds around. So uh, again, community engagement is really where we need to, to focus um, most of our energy and then once we have this then we can do the fancy treatments and we can do all these other things um and and have that uh, outbreak under control uh
0: well karen thank you so much for your time and more importantly for for your work uh thank you
1: yes yeah. you're very welcome thank you
0: All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Karen Huster. That was a very helpful explanation, I think, of the current state of play of the Ebola outbreak and what needs to be done to bring it to a heel. As always, feel free to get in touch with me using the contact button on global podcast.com. And as I mentioned at the outset, if you are with an organization and you think your organization could benefit from Uh, advertising a message to this fantastic audience of global affairs professionals, uh, then send me a note. I'd be happy to tell you about our rates and availability and reach and impact. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.